Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story back What was the inspiration on. for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? Testing. I used to be almost dependent Dear B, on voice. A speaker and a poem. I want to talk to you. <laughs> and the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. In this episode, Michael Shoemaker will read a selection of poems from his recent book, Penumbra. Michael Shoemaker is a Jones Lecturer in Poetry at Stanford University. His first collection of poems, Penumbra, is the recent winner of the Hollis Summers Poetry Prize. A former Wallace Stegner Fellow, his poems appear or are forthcoming in Best American Poetry, Missouri Review, Narrative, Oxford American, Parnassus, Poetry Daily, Virginia Quarterly Review, Yale Review, and other literary journals and anthologies. Born in Texarkana, Texas, he earned an MFA from McNeese State University and a PhD in creative writing from Texas Tech University. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with his wife, Emily. You can find more of Michael's work at his website, michaelshoemaker.net, and his first book, Penumbra, is in bookstores now. Advent. His mother must have looked away, the reckless boy who teeters on the railing of the balcony. Beneath him, the congregation sings a final hymn in a minor key. Above, the oculus, gold leaf, the folded wings of Gabriel. Impossible to say what lured him from his seat the choir's appeal, or the angel's feet. What is his name, so we might call him, safely, down, this child who balances between what cannot and what can be seen, the martyrs and the marbled ground? The Baptist the dramatic context here is that our speaker walks up to a uh, a bench outside of a bus station in Longview, Texas, and someone is already sitting there. The Baptist. May I sit down? My knees are killing me, and, if I'm not mistaken, you seem like you wouldn't mind a stranger's company. Besides, I'll soon be boarding for El Paso, where conversations and abandoned well, and I'd be glad to chat myself. You been? It's hardly worth the trip, if you ask me. I make it every year, and every year it's hotter than the year before. But hell, here it's as hot as sin. Which seems as good a place to start as any. Sin, I mean. Don't worry, son. I'm no evangelist. Just try to think of this as my confession. You strike me as the praying type. Soft eyes and no tattoos, but one who's lost his way. 
I understand. I've pondered in my share of pews and hid my issues with the Lord. Granted, mine may turn the stomach more than most, but like the good book says, a sin is sin. You seem uncomfortable. Despite what's said about me on the ten o'clock, I make my choices carefully. You're not my type. At least, you're not today. Relax. It always happens differently, but some particulars don't change. You ever had a vision? Not the sort the psychic squawks about behind her ball, but something more internal, learned even, like deja vu, but not exactly. It's more biblical than that. As if, behind your eyes, the seed of sleeping scripture bursts into bold bloom. That's if, of course, you're a believing man. The sun might sink behind that single cloud, and, though we're hardly in the heat of August, those three oaks across the road might shed their brittle leaves, almost at once, which, fixed however briefly in their fall, explode into a flock of crows that scatter through and from the naked branches. Soon they're all I see, the birds, then nothing only darkness. And then I watch the final scene played out in some dark theater of the mind, projected against the backdrop of a raven's wing. This all while sitting next to you, while talking freely as we have been. Relax. There's nothing doing. No crows or falling leaves. Besides, there's no water for miles although a sink or toilet gets the job done in a pinch. I'm only kidding. And, truth is, these things take time. I wait. I make their lives my own. Take Mary Ann, for instance. Mother of two. Divorced. She was a shy one. Her tears told the story of her childhood. How, refusing to say amen at night, she hoped communion would last, at least, till morning. And the more I know about their lives, the more I feel the world's weight shifting beneath the water. And after, after the tremors, the last gasp for air, the body slowly letting go, a peace that passes all our understanding. But words are useless in these instances. Words, words. My word, my father used to say when tried a little. He was a Baptist preacher. Does that surprise you? He's how I had my start. I watched him every Sunday, still attend as often as I can, until his heart refused to let him work the baptistry. He asked, if I would help. It was, I thought, an obedient son's responsibility. Of course, it made for a few awkward Sundays. When he asked why I held them down so long, I said I wanted to make sure the change was permanent, which, I suppose, was not a lie. But that's when I began to take Christ's rules seriously. 
do unto others as you would have them do to you. You see, I dream of drowning nearly every night. It truly is a beautiful way to die. But that's too simple, selfish, immature. I'm sure you're wondering why. Why tell you this? Truth is, I thought I saw a younger version of myself. Something kindred in your eyes. Maybe the love of a forbidden art. Truth is, I've looked for you for quite some time. I'm getting old and tired. I can't keep on. My water's drawn inside the house of God. Come. Come. And I will gladly be your first. That you might rise and walk in this new life. Diorama. This one is in sections divided by different rooms in a dollhouse. I'll pause before each one. Diorama. Stairs. Beneath the banister, along the wall, two racks of shoes and a tall black grandfather clock. Its face reads eight o'clock. It chimes. A wooden woman walks a small mechanical plank. A row of portraits scales the stairs, each larger than the last. Bedroom. Greens and yellows. A man leans hard on the bathroom door. Covered in a ringed quilt, the bed is meticulously made. Too many pillows. Matching lamps light the matching nightstands. His hand jostles the knob. Everything is in its place. Kitchen. In the center of the room, a table left in ruin. A meal heaped on three plates, a fourth shattered on the floor. Milk trickles from a tiny mug onto the tile. A dog, with different colored eyes, licks cautiously along the grout. Hallway Down the narrow corridor, more portraits. A glass case lined with porcelain dolls. A runner leading toward a door latched against the dark. A lone light glows beneath the dolls. They float above their stands, ordered in descending rows. Bathroom The vanity reflects the floral trimming. Violets a woman, sitting with her back to the door, hides her eyes. Behind the half-drawn curtain in a clawfoot tub, the children wait, propped on its lip like cherubs, here, where no one will cry out.
the end of the sermon. I came to in the middle of the pasture. Rain ticked against the tractor's hood and steam coiled above the chassis. Thunder plowed into the distance where the clouds obscured the day's remaining light. It was a Sunday. I'd preached on perseverance, on Paul's thorn, and afterward had hoped to mow the thistle before the storm. I don't recall much more than that, only the distant scent of rain, the way the thistle sloughed its seed beneath the blade, the hackles rising on my neck before the strike I also don't recall. Before that afternoon, I'd often answer when asked about my calling, how I'd known. Some men are drawn to heaven, others heaven won't leave alone. And so I stay indoors. I count in Mississippi's the slow seconds between retreating thunders, skim the last chapters of Revelation to forget the trying absence of that pasture, time I lost, until I finally nod off. But even in my sleep, I see the pasture. In the persistent dream, I'm looking out the attic dormer, where, beyond the fence line, a narrow stand of long-leaf pine sways under the gathering clouds, when, only just before I turn away, a bright shank strikes the tallest of the farthest trees. It leans, and since I am removed, behind the glass, since all is still, it falls in utter silence. Who knows the awful mind of our Creator? I've seen that pine lean every night since then, and every night I fail to hear the voice inside that quiet. But what is there to hear? I'm through with prayer. Please don't misunderstand. I only mean to say that had you woke like me, nameless and shivering in the rain, you might consider what you're asking for, the steep price of briefly becoming light. I came to in the middle of the pasture. The tractor idled in the slackening rain. I didn't dream, or else I don't remember. I spoke a single word. There was no answer. Hi, Shu. Hello. Thank you for being on Off the Page and sharing some of your poems with us. Uh, these poems, I believe, all come from your recently published first book, uh, Penumbra. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about that book and um, your work in general? Sure, yeah, I'm happy to. Um, yeah, the poems do come from Penumbra, and it is my first book, and... Um, I hope that uh, the book does quite a few things, but certainly at the core of it is uh, this grappling with the tensions between uh, faith and doubt, specifically through the different brands of uh, Christianity I was I was raised in. Um, I should probably mention, you know, my mom was uh, one of seventeen kids, very. 
Irish Catholic. And so I was raised Catholic until I was about seven or eight years old. And then、um, my mom and dad met some close friends who were part of a, a non-denominational Protestant church that they switched to.、Um, and I grew up the rest of the time in that church. And then my grandparents,、uh, who I was also, also very close to, were Baptists. So anytime I was with them, I was in the Baptist church. So very early on, I was getting Christianity From very different angles, and so a lot of the the recurrent themes in the book are、uh, a lot of the current themes in the book are ways in which I'm grappling with that tension between faith and doubt. And as much as you feel like talking about, could you maybe describe a little about your own religious evolution or your own relationship to faith now? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I'm happy to talk about it, but of course, this is one of those things that's very fluid.、Um, I have had quite a few people talk to me after reading the book about these sort of things, and I find it very interesting that different people take very different sort of,、um, I don't know, journeys away from the book. Like I've had a number of people who read it who think that it's a sort of falling away from faith book, but then I've had、uh, numerous other people think that it's、uh, completely the opposite of that. That it's a way of coming back to faith. And、uh, if if I'm honest, I find myself somewhere in between those poles.、Um, you know, I、uh, I tease and I say, you know, on a I usually live somewhere on the spectrum between, like, when I wake up,、uh, either on a good day I may be a doubting Christian,、uh, on a, on a bad day I may be a hopeful agnostic, but、uh, on a really bad day maybe I'm a doubting agnostic, and then on a really good day maybe I'm a hopeful Christian. But、um, but to be perfectly honest, you know, it's、uh, it's a very fluid thing for me. So, and is that space of Doubt and fluidity and struggle—is that where a lot of your poems come from? Yeah, it's certainly one of the obsessions that brings me back to the page again and again and again.、Um, in fact, many of the poems from the book are dealing with these either explicitly or much less explicitly.、Um, but in my mind, they're all grappling with、um, some form of of faith or doubt, or like trying to find a meaning in a life that goes beyond mortality, or maybe asking questions about, you know. If that's necessary, right?、Um, and and what if one decides that it's not? Like, how does one go on to make a life after that? It seems like it would be incredibly difficult to grapple with these metaphysical questions in writing without lapsing into vagueness or ponderousness.、Uh, have you found in your years of writing and 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 working on this book? Have you found? Not a way, but ways maybe of of grappling with these sort of elusive questions in in ways that that make sense for you as a writer. Yeah, that's a great question.、Um, I don't know that I have a great answer for you. I can certainly say that、um, the image is always something that has been extremely important to me, and.、Um, The stories that I grew up, either from、uh, the Bible or otherwise, are often providing images where a lot of these sort of considerations and a lot of these poems sort of stem from. And so, because I know that I'm dealing with like potentially very abstract subject matters, then it's very important, oftentimes, for me to put my reader in a place, in a scene,、um, make sure that I am working with the image in such a way that keeps them grounded. So that when 
the poems do ask the larger questions. Ideally, they're never um, disembodied or that they don't know where they're at, why ever, wherever this sort of question or meditation is, is happening. In. Right. I mean, in, in, in her writing about writing, Flannery O'Connor talks about, you know, the importance of the concrete and the specific as a way of accessing mystery, that you have to be incredibly literal in order to tackle these huge questions. Well, yeah. And of course, O'Connor is one of my heroes. So, um, so yes, I, I agree entirely. And of course, she wrestles with a lot of the same sort of obsessions and subject matters. So, um, so absolutely. So I really want to talk about the Baptist. Sure. Um, because I, and this may be the poverty of my own poetic education. I don't, I doubt that. <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> know of a lot of poems uh, that take the form of monologues like that. Um, something like the end of the sermon feels different to me. It feels less spoken and more, you know, like a, like a, a, a person recollecting an experience. Sure. Whereas, whereas the Baptist is a conversation or not a, a one-sided conversation. So that's such an interesting form to me and so close to theater really and drama. And I'm just curious about where this poem originated. Yeah, this you know sometimes you have poems. It's very easy to sort of uh, remember the moment or how it sort of comes into being. Uh, the Baptist is one that it's much more convoluted. It's difficult to sort of pin down. I can certainly say that it was uh, a strange juxtaposition of uh, me being in the classroom with my students and talking about matters of craft and how anytime you're talking about artistic endeavors that uh, you can have these rules, but there's always an exception to every rule um, or else, you know, these things would be a science rather than an art. And uh, I remember one of my students, this was still when I was in Texas, responding with, well, what about the golden rule? Um, and at first it sort of took me aback, like I didn't know how to respond to that. But then when thinking about it more deeply, of course, there's always, there's an exception to the golden rule as well. You know, if if someone wants to do harm to themselves, I don't think that uh, that you want them treating you in that same sort of way, right? Um, so that was certainly some sort of idea that was kind of um, mulling in the back of my head. But then there was also that wasn't enough for the poem to get started. Then there started coming like images and bits and phrases that I started seeing. Uh, some one, in fact, just waking up from a dream, like the the image of the oak trees uh, where the leaves turn into crows. It was just this weird, surreal dream that I had. But then there was suddenly a voice um, that was describing those trees, and then I had to start asking questions about who is the speaker that's saying these words. And then that's when the character really sort of came to life. And then I started asking more and deeper questions about the character. And then the idea of the golden rule came back into play. And uh, and then all of a sudden I was in a place in Longview, Texas at this bus station. And uh, it just sort of, of went from there. So sort of this interplay of the abstract and the concrete, it sounds like. So uh, I, I, I also want to ask, I mean, there's such a when I read that poem and when I hear you read it, there's such a fluidity of tone there. At least to me, it seems as if the speaker is alternately uh, ominous and and avuncular. And I think I cycled through thinking he was a serial killer and thinking he was the angel of death and he was uh, 
God or, you know, a, a savior-like figure and or maybe uh, someone trying to pick someone up at a bus stop. And <laughs> I'm not asking you to spill any of your secrets. I guess I'm just curious as to how your um, understanding of the personality or the nature of this voice evolved through the drafting process. I think it began for me as um, as a way of thinking about, um, you know, what we call in the South, you know, the witness, right? Like uh, as one witnessing to someone else, evangelical, like sort of preaching the gospel. What does that look like when the gospel for a particular person has been perverted in a strange sort of way, right? And then what does that pitch look like then all of a sudden? Um, and this character for me was a way to be able to um, to explore that. And I, I do think that your different readings are interesting to me because I think that they're all true in some form or fashion, right? Like it does seem to me like he's trying to to pick up this person that's on uh, that he's encountering on the bench. But uh, for me, I do read him as a you know this uh, this very dark character who has taken things from scripture that maybe he's grown up with, but then has somehow like changed them in such a way to rationalize evil things that that he is doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, and, and among other things, the the poem makes me think of oh wow, there's such a fine line between baptism and drowning, right? <laughs> um, so let's talk about uh, Diorama, as as I now know how to pronounce that word. <laughs> um, I was actually just recently talking to some students of mine about form in poetry, which is not a subject that I'm myself terribly well versed in, but, but talking about the idea that um, sometime a, a given form can be freeing and can be in some ways easier to work with than a poem in which you have to invent or improvise your own form. And I was just curious how the the form of this poem, uh, the the um the the division into separate rooms of the house, um, is that something that was there from the beginning, was part of the impetus of the poem, or is that something that you found along the way? This is a poem that's much easier to sort of put my finger on in terms of like how it began for me. Um, I was watching a little mini documentary on um, on a woman named Frances Glessner Lee, who um, you may or may not have heard of, but she um, is, she made these amazing dioramas of unsolved crime scenes. I think there were twenty in total, uh, and they were extraordinarily detailed. Um, in fact, I think unless I'm mistaken, like homicide investigators are still trained on some of these dioramas. And I liked the idea of how a story can happen or a story can be told or at the very least pointed toward by these sort of snapshots, right? Like just a look into this room, a look into this room and a sort of paying attention to detail. And uh, so I wanted to know what that might look like in language um, if I was trying to you know, build something similar. So then the form for it, um, for my poem, is based off of that. I wanted to try to give uh, a similar experience, but then through language. Uh, so it came about much more naturally in that way. Then I just had to figure out, like, what I wanted to show the reader, when I wanted to show it to him, and in which order we were going to move through this particular dollhouse. 
Well, and I feel like that poem to me captures something that I, I, I feel is characteristic of your work, which is this sense of like, I, I don't know how to phrase it exactly, but a kind of controlled, um, ominousness, you know, your, your writing, I feel is very, very, very steady and very, um, tranquil in some ways, at least when I hear you read it aloud. And yet it feels like it has this, 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 this turmoil beneath the surface. And I think of this house in which clearly something awful has happened and we're not quite looking at it, but we're looking all around it. And so there's this like horrible tension between the, the steadiness of that gaze and the awareness of what it may be as kind of alluding to or playing off of. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> I take that as a compliment. <laughs> um, I'm curious, um, you know, as someone who perhaps has come from uh, a world that was not the world of poetry and MFA programs and readings and workshops, you know, um, but being raised in uh, you know, religious, various religious traditions um, and traversing various worlds as we all do. Do you think of yourself as having a reader in mind that you write for? Oh, this is a great question. And it's always a hard question for me to answer because I find myself on on one hand wanting to write the poems that only I can write, which means like chasing the obsessions, like reader be damned, right? Um, but then on the other hand, it's also important for me that the you know, many people who I care very dearly about who are close to me who maybe have hasn't had a college education, like it means something to me for them to be able to pick up a poem that I've written and to get something out of it. So I feel like I'm constantly living uh, in that tension, like trying to find a balance. Um, but like when the poem shows up, each one seems to demand something a little bit different. So sometimes you have to give yourself grace on one side or the other. Like there are some poems that I feel like demand a sort of mm, like a denser sort of treatment that not everybody is going to be able to pick up and to enjoy. But at the same time, if you don't give it that treatment, then the poem doesn't exist at all, right? And then I also feel like there's a danger on the other side of the spectrum where if, you know, everything that one is writing is just so easily accessible, then you run a risk of being considered, you know, you know too light, right? Um, and so I constantly find myself like juggling between those worlds as, as wanting to, you know, write the poems that only I can write, but then at the same time, also making sure that they're accessible. Well, I like the idea of trying to just serve the poem because that in a way... I don't know, kind of purifies the process. Right, right. But when you think, like, if you give yourself that sort of grace every time you're writing the poem, then all of a sudden you can have, like, a book of poems that nobody understands, right? Right. And, and <laughs> so there's a balance to be had. You spoke earlier about um, work that you were doing in the classroom influencing some of your writing, and you've been teaching now for a while here at Stanford, and you've taught also in Texas and uh, at McNeese. Mm -hmm. um, and so sort of how has teaching influenced your practice as a writer? It continues to um, influence my writing. Um, I'm one of the lucky ones, I feel like, in that teaching for me is very generative. Um, I'm about as introverted as they come, but there are a few places that I feel more like myself than in the classroom. And um, 
So I feel like it's just a tremendous privilege to be able to geek out about the things that I care most about with my students and then hearing, you know, them talking about poems that I've read thousands of times and them helping me to see them in different ways continues to inform like what I'm doing at the page, whether I realize it or not. Um, sometimes, of course, you know, it's much easier to see how recent things that have happened in the classroom are informing some writing. But I also feel like just overall, it, um, it's always in the back of my head. So even if I'm not able to articulate how it's like shaping a particular poem that I'm working on, it always is. Um, so yeah, I mean, the short version of that answer is just, it gives me a sort of energy and a life that comes to the page. Um, but that energy is, you know, it's constantly changing because the students that I have are constantly changing. I'm also curious about the revision process for a poem because it seems to me like it might be a more intuitive process than revising a piece of prose or at least you have fewer maybe of the hydraulics of narrative and character and etc although you certainly do have that in poems uh in, in some poems um of the four poems that you read um is there one where you can sort of trace in your mind the revision process or the various stages that went through and, and sort of challenges or roadblocks you came to? The Baptist is probably the most interesting story of the batch in terms of revision. It, it was one of the poems that um, initially it began as a completely different poem. Um, the The speaker initially was a speaker that I considered um, much closer to myself as the one, the voice of the poem. Uh, and then, of course, it was a very, very different poem, but it was asking some questions that I knew I wanted to be dealing with on the page, but it seemed lifeless. So it went to it went into a drawer and it stayed there for a very long time. And then these other things that I was mentioning earlier when we were talking about the poem, those things started happening. Um, and so I was able to go back to that poem and think about some of these words in the voice of this very deranged character. Um, and then it caught a life that it didn't have before. And it moved from that into manifesting on the page. But at first, the poem wasn't in blank verse. It was in tetrameter, which is like a four beat line. Um, and it also had loosely incorporated rhymes. But then I felt like the rhymes were actually pushing against the voice of the character in a way that I didn't like. Um, and so I ended up stripping the rhymes out, opening up the lines a little bit into five beats instead of four per line. And then after that, it goes into a drawer again for a long time. I got it to where it was probably about halfway through the poem, but it still felt like uh, it didn't have the sort of movement or there wasn't something happening in the poem that felt like uh, like it was catching a life of its own yet. Um, and then that's when I had the memory of the golden rule come back into my head. And then when I put that sort of uh, philosophical consideration into the head of the character and think about how the character might use that to rationalize you know, these sort of horrible actions, then it caught a spark that allowed it to sort of move through a draft. And then after that, it was just obsessive tinkering for, you know, six plus months before I got it to a place where I finally started sending it out. Um, and I also want to ask about the end of the sermon. That is also um, a poem 
that you know has a character or I take it to be a character it could yeah, be yeah. autobiographical no 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 those two poems are certainly persona poems in fact whenever I read the Baptist I always feel like I have to dis- give a disclaimer because it's like, it's I can't imagine someone with a more different worldview than my own than that particular speaker um, the end of the sermon of course is a little bit different but uh, the speaker is actually loosely molded on um, on I want to call a character but um my grandpa shoemaker, whenever you would be complaining about something, so if uh, you know if you were having a particularly hard day and you're just whining, he would love to tell you the story about the preacher he had in Orange, Texas, growing up that had been struck by lightning twice, and that character, whether it was true or not, stuck with me. Um, and as I got older, at first, you know, it was just a funny character uh, that he would use to like get you not to whine, but then as I got older, I started thinking about this character as a serious person and like what would that do to one's theology if one had been struck by lightning twice and uh so the speaker for that poem is my way of trying to give a body to that particular character um yeah and to wrestle with some of those tensions uh between faith and doubt that uh that i was mentioning earlier uh and i guess lastly i'd just like to ask you um which poets led you to poetry, which poets sort of are continue to inspire you to this day? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a very long list and it and it will shuffle, you know, depending on the day that I wake up. But um Frost, Yeats, Bishop, and Brooks are always, always at the top of my list. So the order might change from day to day, but typically they're always at the top of my list. But the the list is very, very long. Um uh, Anthony Hecht is also a big influence of mine. Of course, Dunn, Hopkins, Milton are all, you know, poets who I hope to be in conversation with as well. Shu, thank you so much for appearing on Off the Page. Thanks so much for having me. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches, Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablatza, and Osei Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.